Hello, friends, and welcome. Let me get my lights turned on and make sure everything looks pretty. Welcome to our <clears throat> Sunday teaching. Today we have something a little different. We're doing a sutra class on our Sunday teachings in order to finish up the Dharmapada. Um, so before we get to that, Let's go ahead and uh, say our community gathering prayers here. Of course, my name is Venerable Tarpa. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing the present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Again, welcome to our SBT Sutra class. Today, we again, we are finishing up the our study of the Dhammapada uh, with chapter 26 entitled The Brahman. So we've done a chapter a week for 26 weeks. It's been quite a long time. Some of our Sangha members talked about they thought it was sad that we're ending. I'm eager to get to some other sutras as well, so I, I'm okay with that. Um, and uh, so without further ado, let's jump right into it because this chapter is quite lengthy. Uh, luckily, there is, uh, there's not that much commentary needed. I think a lot of it is quite straightforward and uh, and... I don't know about you, but it's quite poetic, right? I found this chapter the, to be the most beautiful out of all of them. Uh, one thing I would like to share before we start is the title. So, um, in the different in the different uh, presentations, we have different titles. So, uh, Gaden Shopa calls it the Brahman. Uh, Buddha Rakita calls it the holy man, and Gil Franzil calls it the Brahman. So there's a little bit uh, of a play of words there, and I wanted to kind of explain that. So um, this is in the, the notes from Buddha Rakita. The Brahmins were the members of the priest caste in India, the highest of the four castes. Uh, in this chapter, however, the word Brahman is redefined to refer not to someone born into a caste, but rather to someone of worthy conduct and spiritual maturity. So this is something uh, that the Buddha would often talk about. He would have a lot of dialogue with the Brahmins. Remember that in the Buddha's time, there's two main religions. There's Brahmanism, which is the precursor to modern Hinduism. And then we have Jainism, um, 
on the other side. <clears throat> Often it's said that Buddhism is the middle way between the two, where Brahmanism was more of a householder's life, and Jainism was much more of an ascetic life. And then Buddhism kind of is in the middle there between the two. And Buddhism existed in that way. The, uh, the Buddhist Sangha uh, lived outside of the city, but not as deep in the forest as the Jains would, completely removing themselves because they would have alms rounds and they also would teach the lay. So, so they lived in, in the middle between them all. So oftentimes they talk about Buddhism is the middle way between all things. And the monastic itself is, a, uh, is the middle way. Last uh, yesterday, we did chapter 25 on the monk. And so that's the idea of monasticism as well. It's, a, it's, a, it's the, the middle way between householder and ascetic of, uh, of uh, priest and, and, lay, and, and lay person. Uh, it's the middle ground between all of these things. The other thing I wanted to mention was there's a lot of play of words with this. So let's begin with the idea of the title of Brahman. Again, Brahman is the name for a, a Hindu caste member, a priest. Uh, so in this context, the Buddha is using the Hindus or the, the Brahmins own language in order to make a point. So he would often talk about uh, the idea of Brahmin. The Brahmins would come to him and then he would say, well, what is a Brahmin? And to a, to a Brahmin, the idea, the position is something you're born into. You know, you can only get it through being born into. And the Buddha would, would reject that and say, well, clearly that's not what it is. What a Brahmin is, is something that somebody does. It's something, it's a, it's a person who's developed themselves, who's awakened, right? So in a sense, the Buddha's using their own language to make the point. He does that throughout the sutras. In fact, something like the three poisons, was actually referred to in the beginning as the three fires and the three fires and that in Buddhism that's that's attachment uh, aversion and ignorance but the reason he used the word three fires was because the three fires is the main practice in Brahmanism where they're they're required to keep three fires going throughout the day and so uh, so often the Buddha works it in that way but after reading through uh, the chapter, it's clear what they're referring to as Brahman. And they, they clearly mention that the Brahman is the Arhat. The Arhat is the highest uh, level of practitioner in the Theravada school. Uh, in the Mahayana, they have the Bodhisattva ideal, but generally it's the same thing. It's a, a being who's just below a Buddha. It's a, an enlightened being, but they yet have become a full Buddha. Uh, but in another verse, they actually talk about the Brahman being a Buddha themselves. So there's still some mystery, but generally we're just talking about an enlightened and an awakened being, someone who's liberated, the highest of all practitioners. That's what this chapter is about. Okay, with that said, let's get to the reading for with everybody. Um, Okay, oh, one second here, let me find that again. So, how about we start with 
karma would you like to read now there's a lot to read so let's read through the four today i was wondering if we should have just always been reading verse by verse and going through the three and just doing it quickly but it seemed like a lot of them are connected and help each other so we're going to continue that so uh, karma can you read uh 383 through 386 please O Brahman, cut off the stream and conquer your desire. Conquer it completely. You have seen the destruction of conditioned things. Come now, O Brahman, to know the unconditioned. When with the two dharmas of peace and insight, the Brahman travels to the other shore, all fetters will fall away and vanish for this one of knowledge. Neither this shore nor that, neither here nor there exist. For the one, fearless and unfettered, I call Brahman. Contemplative, unblemished, and completely balanced, doing what ought to be done and free from defilement, this one who attains the most excellent aim, I call Brahman. Oh, thank you. That was lovely. So so beautiful. Huh? Um, Jen, would you like to read 383 through 386? Exert yourself, O holy man. Cut off the stream of craving and discard sense desire. Knowing the destruction of all the conditioned things, become, O holy man, the knower of the uncreate, or nirvana. <clears throat> when a holy man has reached the summit of two paths, meditative concentration and insight, he knows the truth and all his fetters fall away. He for whom there is nothing, the shore nor the other shore, nor yet both, he who is free of cares and is unfettered, him do I call a holy man. He who is meditative, stainless, and settled, whose work is done, and who is free from cankers, highest reached the highest, having reached the highest goal, him do I call a holy man. Thank you. That was lovely. And Nigel, would you like to read 3D3 through, oh, Nigel, uh, Neil, they both start with N. Can you read 383 through 386? Drive and cut off the stream, O Brahman. Dispel central craving, knowing the end, ending of all formations. You, Brahman, you know the unmade. When, with tranquility and insight, the Brahman reaches the other shore, then, for that knowing one, all fetters come to their end. Whoever is untied and free from distress, and for whom neither are beyond and not beyond, nor are beyond both, <coughs> both beyond, sorry, and not beyond exist, I call Brahmin. Whoever is seated, absorbed in meditation, done what has to be done, free of contaminants, who has reached the highest goal, I call Brahmin. Oh, thank you. Everybody's doing a great job reading. So um, I'm not going to do too much commentary. There are a couple of things I need to touch on. Uh, some of these passages are quite encrypted, and I couldn't find much commentary to help. Um, but um, here when they talk about strive and cut off the stream, usually we think about the stream as a stream of consciousness, but here's the this, this stream of craving and desire. 
uh, knowing the end of all formations. So the idea of formations or uh, we talk about mental formations in the uh, five aggregates, but we talk about the conditioned and unconditioned. The condition is, is uh, basically thought of as, I think I have a note here that explains it better than I'm about to, conditioned things that all phenomena, including mental states, arise as a result of causes and conditions. Because everything arises and ceases, nothing can be considered permanent or self-existence. Impermanence, right, we're talking about. Nirvana, because of it, because of it being our true nature, is considered to be unconditioned. They often say that uh, nirvana is one of the few things uh, that arises without cause, that it's a, it's a condition that's, that's continuous and all we have to do is kind of uh, plug into it, but that's a very controversial statement. So generally we can think about the conditioned or uh, or the world of formations as unenlightened existence and the unmade, the non-conditioned, the non-formative as being enlightened. Um, and then uh, the two paths of, uh, the two dharmas of tranquility and insight I haven't heard of them referred to as dharma. That's the two paths of meditation, of, of calm abiding and insight meditation. And the other shore of, is cold, of course, is enlightenment. But in some of the notes I saw that they, they also talk about the other shore as being the other shore from desire, which maybe is one and the same. And then we talk about here, uh, whoever is untied and free of distress. Uh, well, this is an interesting one. Uh, is, uh, uh, let me take a peek at some. Let's see what 185, I believe in this world as opposed to the world beyond, not beyond. Okay, so this is very in encrypted, this verse, and I haven't found a commentary on it. There, I'm sure there's one out there, but the idea of whoever sees neither uh, existence after life as neither beyond nor not beyond, neither both beyond or not beyond of existence is called the Brahman. So uh, what exactly they're referring to, I'm not quite sure. So in the Mahayana tradition, they often talk about moving behind, moving beyond distinctions like this. That And the Buddha would talk about that when it talked about the Buddha's 14 questions he wouldn't answer the Buddha's golden silence. This was one of the questions asked of him when a Buddha dies, does a Buddha exist, not exist, neither exist or not exist or the opposite. And so the Buddha just would, would refuse to answer the question. And it's implied that the answer just can't be conveyed in language. But it, this also could be an argument for uh, the, that the Buddha supports uh, the non-dual state, which I don't believe he does. You don't see passages like this in other places. So there's a little mystery to this. If anybody uh, wants to do the research and find some commentaries, please uh, post it in our Dharma uh, chat group. And uh, lastly, we have... Um, yeah, so a lot of these are just self-explanatory. Okay, let's move on to the next set. This is important. These are spoken to Ananda, his, his, uh, the Buddha's cousin and his helper. 
So um, the closest person to the Buddha, uh, Neil, would you like to read 387 and 380? Well, I think it's just one, 387. It's just a long one. Sun shines brightly throughout the day, and the moon shines at night. The print is splendid when, his, when in his armor. The Brahmin, when he is in meditation. But the radiance of the perfect Buddha blazes forth both day and night. Yeah, it's a great, great example of how poetic this is. Another thing I want you to keep in mind is it's really interesting, the different translations. I think this chapter, each verse is so different where a lot of the other ones were quite similar. And I really enjoyed each take on, on the different on the different verses. Uh, Jennifer, would you like to read 387? The sun shines by day, the moon shines by night, the warrior shines in armor, the holy man shines in meditation, but the Buddha shines resplendent all day and all night. And there's that beautiful word, huh, shines. It's a great way to, to uh, talk about a practitioner. And Carmel, would you like to read 387? The sun shines by day, the moon glows at night, the warrior shines in his armor, the Brahmin shines in meditative absorption. But all day and all night, the Buddha shines in splendor. When we were, uh, we were working on, uh, we were sharing uh, radiating awareness in yesterday's meditation, and we talked about that feeling of radiating is really just the experience of stillness. And, um, and it's that radiating, it is that shining. So when they say the, 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 uh, the arhat shines in meditative absorption, I think it's much more accurate than people think it is. That, that, that's exactly what that, feed, what that meditation feels like. It feels like you're shining or radiating. It's quite lovely. Thank you, Karma. Karma, would you like to read 388? If you have abandoned wickedness, you are a Brahmin. If you have perfect conduct, you are a monk. If you have removed all your own impurities, you are called renunciate. In the commentaries, they talked about this being a kind of wordplay. And I think the commentary also kind of would uh, uh, alluded to the fact that they weren't quite sure what it is because in so many ways, these words are all synonyms, right? The, uh, well, the Brahmin would be, would be higher, again, it would be the Arhat, that would be higher than the monk, but they're all renunciants. So uh, you can interpret that as you wish. Jen, would you like to read 388? Because he has discarded evil, he is called a holy man. Because he is serene, he is called a renunciant. And you probably have noticed that the landscapers are here at my house. They're just blowing off the uh, patio. It usually just takes a few minutes. So hopefully the noise doesn't bother anybody. Neil, would you like to read 388? Having banished evil, one is called a Brahman. Living peacefully, one is called a renunciant. Having driven out one 
own impurities. One is called the one who has gone forth. And one who has gone forth is someone who steps up to the Buddha and becomes a monastic. He's gone forth into the into the path quite pretty. Oh, thank you guys. And we have two here to read. Neil, would you like to read 389 and 390? No one should strike a Brahmin. But being struck, no Brahmin should feel anger. Alas, misfortune for the one who harms a Brahmin, but greater misfortune for the Brahmin who turns in anger. Oh, I'm going to have to change my ways. Go ahead, Neil. Read when, when the Brahmin turns his mind from pleasure, no small benefit arises. When he <clears throat> quiets all, vindictiveness, then he acquires that much suffering. Beautiful, thank you. Jennifer, 389 and 390, please. One should not strike a holy man, nor should a holy man, when struck, give way to anger. Shame on him who strikes a holy man, and more shame on him who gives way to anger. Nothing is better for a holy man than when he holds his mind back from what it's enduring, to the extent that intent to harm wears away, so that the extent does not does suffering subside. Very nice. And Carmel, would you like to read 3D9 One should not strike a Brahmin, and a Brahmin should not set anger loose. Shame on the one who hits a Brahmin, and greater shame to the one who sets anger loose. For the Brahmin, nothing is better than restraining the mind from what it cherishes. Whenever one turns away from the intent to harm, suffering is allayed. An interesting point they talk about, they talk about one of the greatest practices is simply being mindful and learning to restrain those things you cherish most, right? Now, to me, it, it's a practice. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we can't have the things we cherish. But it's saying that, you know, those things you cherish most, those are great ob objects for practicing restraint. You know, and that's uh, like whether it's Ben and Jerry's ice cream or whatever. I don't think they mean your kids, you know, don't do something silly like that. But it's definitely a practice I should, I should, I should stop eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, Karma, would you like to read 391? Whoever causes no harm by body, speech, or mind, and is restrained in all these three, that one I call a Brahmin. Thank you. Neil 391. He who does no evil indeed, word, thought, who is restrained in these three ways, him do I call a holy man. Jennifer 391. Oh, sorry, it's at the it's at the top of 391. It's up here. Whoever does no ill through body, speech, and mind, and is restrained in these three areas, I call a Brahmin. And of course, SBT, we talk about beautiful mind, be a soft and beautiful mind, soft and beautiful speech, soft and beautiful behavior, and soft and beautiful action. 
one of the great of all, greatest of all practices. And we have another single one here. Jennifer, would you like to read 392? You're muted, Jennifer. Sorry. I know the one who shows you the Dharma, the teachings of the perfect Buddha. Show this one the same respect and awe that the Brahmin shows the sacrificial fire. And the sacrificial fire was one that I mentioned before, usually thought of as the three fires. But in Brahmanism, Hinduism, fire is the is the key object, and they'll they'll touch the fire with their hands, and then they'll put the warmth on their eyes. It's, it's a quite a pretty, quite a beautiful practice. And uh, Neil, would you like to read, oh, or, I'm sorry, Karma, would you like to read 392? Just as a Brahmin priest reveres his sacrificial fire, even so should one devoutly revere the person from whom one has learned the Dharma taught by the Buddha. And you should give them treats and nice things. Neil, would you like to read 392? Ben Jerry's ice cream. Brahmin worships a ritual fire. One should respectfully worship anyone from whom one might learn the Dharma of the fully awakened one. Great. And I'm curious, I, the word worship here, of course, as a secular Buddhist group, is not very appealing. Um, what words uh, honor we have is the first one. That's a better word. And uh, show, uh, revere, devoutly revere. So those are some pretty words. But I, I'm not very comfortable with the word worship, right? As m many of us aren't. And Neil, would you like to read 393? Not by linery. <clears throat> Not by birth, not by uncut hair, does one become a Brahmin. One who has truth of a Dharma, the pure one, is a Brahmin. And of course, those are things that Brahmins would usually have. And um, uh, karma, would you like to read 393? Not by matted hair, nor by lineage, nor by birth, does one become a holy man, but he in whom truth and righteousness exist. He is pure, he is a holy man. Gen 393. Not by matted hair, nor not by clan, not by birth does one become a Brahmin. The one in whom there is truth and Dharma is the one who is pure, is a Brahmin. That's great. And the word clan here, you know, we could say caste, right? It's part of the Indian caste system. And these are things that the, the Brahmin priests would do. And the Brahmin priests are sadhus, cover themselves in ashes and decorate their face and things. And the Buddha is saying that, you know, you know, those things don't make you an awakened being. It's your conduct. It's your work. It's your realization. Uh, Jennifer, 394. What use is your long hair, you foolish man? What use is your antelope skin? You cleanse and purify your outside so well, but inside you are most unclean. Thank you. Neil, 394. What is the use of your matted hair, a witless man? <laughs> what of 
and your garments of antelope hide. Within you is a tangle of passion. Only outwardly do you cleanse yourself. Yeah. And this is a long one. Let's let's uh, let's recite three ninety five. I'm gonna have Neil start three ninety five through three ninety nine. Go ahead, Neil, right up here. One who wears dust covered rags and is so thin his ribs stand out. The one who meditates in the forest alone. That one I call a Brahmin. I'm working on that one. I do not call someone a Brahmin because he belongs to a family of Brahmins, because he was born into a Brahmin mother, or puts on airs, or has wealth. But the one who has nothing at all, and is attached to nothing at all, that one I call a Brahmin. Whoever has cut every tie, whoever is totally fearless, whoever is unfettered and truly unhindered, this one I call a Brahmin. Whoever has cut through the net of aversion, the cage of desire, the chains of doubt, and all the attendant bonds, whoever has removed the hindrance of defilement, who is awakened, this one I call a Brahmin. One whose army is the power of patience, who quarrels with neither friend nor foe, who endures everything without <clears throat> anger. anger, this one I call a Brahmin. Oh, great job, Neil, thank you. Oh, it's so pretty, isn't it? Karma, would you like to read 395 through 399? The person who wears a robe made of rags, who is lean, with veins showing all over the body, and who meditates alone in the forest, him do I call a holy man. I do not call him a holy man because of his lineage or high-born mother. If he is full of impeding attachments, he is just a superlicious man, but who is free supercilious. from I knew I messed that up sorry <laughs> <laughs> who is free from impediments and clinging him do I call a holy man uh, super, supercilious is like it sounds a silly man yeah 397 please he who having cut off all fetters trembles no more who has overcome all attachments and is emancipated him do I call a holy man he who has cut off the thong of hatred, the band of cravings, and the rope of false views, together with the impertinences, latent evil tendencies, he who has removed the crossbar of ignorance and is enlightened, him do I call a holy man. He who is without resentment endures abuse, beating, and punishment, whose power real might is patience, him do I call a holy man. Oh, thank you. That was lovely. Great. I just wanted to check something. And Jennifer, yep, for 395 through 399. Someone robbed in. Oops, I'm sorry. 
No problem. Okay, sorry about that. Someone robed in discarded rags, leaning with veins showing, alone in the forest, absorbed in meditation, I call a Brahmin. I call no one a Brahmin for being born from a womb, from a mother. Someone who has anything is called self-important. Whoever has nothing and does not cling, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, having cut off every fetter, does not tremble, is beyond, is unbound and beyond attachment, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, awakened, has cut the strap, thong, cord, and bridle, and lifted up the crossbar, I call a Brahmin. Whoever endures abuse, assault, and imprisonment with animosity, without animosity, and who has forbearance as one's strength, as one's mighty army, I call a Brahmin. Thank you. That was great. Just a couple points. Um, when they talk about uh, wearing discarded robes, originally uh, monks were supposed to find dis disregarded rags wherever they could and sew them together to make their own robes. This included getting uh, getting rags off of corpses in the cemetery. It's like wherever they found them. And then the idea of uh, being lean with veins showing, of course, again, that must be a misprint because we all know that chubby monks are the best monks. Um, but nevertheless, we can see the picture that's painted. This is a serious practitioner the Buddha's talking about, not those fat monks that are eating Subway all day long. Um, and another thing, I think most of it was clear. I wanted to talk just a quick fact on something. I think it was in Buddha Rakita's presentation. Um, they talk about the, the various wrong views. Maybe, uh, and in one of the, in one of the, um, well, I was just gonna mention it. They talk about these uh, 32 wrong views, but what they didn't mention was that the 32 wrong views was the Buddha being a bit sarcastic and he implies the 32 schools of the Shramanara, which are precursors to the Jain school. They're, they're in existence too at that time. And um, they said that the Shramanara had different uh, views and different clans wearing every color robe you could imagine. And the Buddha, uh, who, you know, his tradition arises from them. Um, yeah, he calls them the 30 holders of the 32 wrong views. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, anyways, uh, I think we're getting a really good picture of uh, what the Buddha... No, no. Yeah, please. Um, could you say a word or two more about 395? Because that sounds to, as it sounds to me like a, a kind of extreme behavior. Uh, sure. The one who wears those covered rags, like what we mentioned uh, uh, before, uh, no, this is kind of the traditional monastic. Uh, but there are a couple confusing things. And when we talk about meditating in the forest alone, you know, monastics did live in groups. But so are they implying that, well, maybe he goes off into the forest to meditate, comes back to the group for other things. Um, but uh, it's extreme, but not extreme in those days. So... Uh, even before Jainism is there, Brahmanism and the Shramanara are the two schools. Brahmanism is like, again, the householder religion. 
And then all these ascetics living in the woods with long hair, covered in ashes, who knows all the crazy things they would wear. Um, that was a part of the day. Now, you're, we're talking about the Bronze Age, 2,600 years ago. You know, living in the forest underneath a tree wasn't so weird. You know, probably a lot of people did it, even non-religious people. Probably half of the town lived underneath a tree. So I think at the time, it's not as outrageous as it would be today. And that's a good reason why I am not living underneath a tree with my veins showing. And, you know, uh, I, I often find uh, it's funny when people come to monasticism and people have become romantic and get a passion for living the way the Buddha did. And they, you know, you get Westerners that want to find a tree somewhere and that's real practice and that's where I'm going to go. And, um, and often like the forest tradition in the Theravada school, I lovingly refer to them as uh, uh, B, uh, BABs, Bronzed Age Buddhists, because they're so intense in their, in their holding of an eye and everything. It's like they're really trying to live exactly the way the Buddha did at that time. And maybe there's a benefit. I, I can't be the one to decide that. But I think, it, I think it's extreme like you mentioned. I think nowadays it's extreme behavior. But in the Buddha's day, I don't think it was. I think that that was kind of, that was normal behavior. So you had, you had all these aesthetic, ascetics of all kinds of different groups running around at that time. You had the Shramanaras. The Jains are the next school to arise from that. You had Jainism, which were really strong ascetics. You had the 32 Shramanara groups. So literally the forest is just filled with all these people practicing Buddhism. And then Buddha comes along and... One of the reasons why I think the Buddha was very strict about his uh, his uniform in the monastic code about shaving your head, about wearing robes, is that he wants to really make it clear that his group is not those other groups. Where all those other groups, mostly they all had long hair. The rules were not to cut your hair or your beard or your fingernails. And so the Buddha comes along and I think he he wants to define his monks clearly. So that's why... We do that. Plus, with his shaved head and shaved beard, you don't get lice. And I think he wanted to have a nice clear, clean appearance for his monastics. Okay. Does anybody remember where we are? I think we're on 400. Um, and uh, I think Neil's up for our next reading, if I'm not mistaken. Neil, can you read 400 to 404? Read from resentment. Is practice firm, self-disciplined, determined, and full of understanding. He who is in his final birth, this one I call a Brahmin. Just as water slips from the flower's petal and the mustard seed falls from the needle's point, desire does not settle upon the one I call a Brahmin. Let me make a point. When they talk about a mustard falling from a needle's point, they're just talking like there's no way for a mustard seed to be balanced on the needle's point. They're talking about things that just naturally fall away, and that's the its desire from a Brahmin. Neo, please continue at 402. Whoever knows the end of suffering, even in this very life, who has cast aside burden and is free from bondage, this one I call a Brahmin. The one whose wisdom is profound, 
who knows the right path from the wrong, who has obtained the most excellent aim, this one I call the Brahmin. The one who wanders without destination, who remains aloof from both householders and monks, the one with few desires, this one I call a Brahmin. Thank you. That's a strange passage, huh? Who's separated from householder and monks. I don't remember seeing that the first time I read through it. Karma, would you like to start at 400 and read through 404? He who is free from anger is devout, virtuous, without craving, self-subdued, and bears his final body. Him do I call a holy man. Like water on a lotus leaf or a mustard seed on the point of a needle, he who does not cling to sensual pleasures, him do I call a holy man. He who in this very life realizes for himself the end of suffering, who has laid aside the burden and become emancipated, him do I call a holy man. He who is profound knowledge, who is wise, skilled in discerning the right or wrong path and has reached the highest goal, him do I call a holy man. He who holds aloof from householders and ascetics like, alike and wanders about with no fixed abode and but few wants, him do I call a holy man. I think that this is a better translation instead of monk ascetic, meaning the non-Buddhist ascetics. I think that that would be much more appropriate. Let's see what Gil Fransdale says. Uh, Jen, can you read 400 to 404? Whoever is without anger or craving, observance in spiritual practice and virtue, self-controlled and in one's final body, I call a Brahmin. Like water on a lotus leaf or a mustard seed on the tip of an owl, whoever does not cling to sensual craving, I call a Brahmin. Whoever knows right here the end of suffering, who is unburdened and unbound, I call a Brahmin. Whoever is wise, of profound insight, understanding what is and isn't the path, and who has attained the highest goal, I call a Brahmin. Whoever is not mixed up with householders or renunciants, who has no abode and few desires, I call a Brahmin. Thank you. That was wonderful. And again, they talk about uh, householder renunciants. So to me, that's the division between Brahmanism and Sramanaras or Jains, that the Jains were really, and still are, intense renunciants, meaning that, well, well, they're sadhus. Uh, there's two kinds, but the one that most people think of are the naked sadhus. And they uh, walk around in India completely naked, and they have their bro they have their broom to wipe to wipe the road in front of them so they don't step on creatures. They carry a mask so they don't breathe in small animals and insects. And um, but they uh, they do things. They sleep on the ground without blankets or pillows. They do a lot of fasting. In fact, it's very common for Jains to die during a retreat where they'll, uh, they'll actually starve themselves to death, including one of the great Indian ki kings, Chenda Kurti, uh, no, no, no. oh, I can't remember. It's been a while since I studied that. But um, it was Ashoka's grandfather, I think. Um, <clears throat> anyways, uh, 
And the Buddha clearly practiced some of these things. They would do things like set, set themselves on fire, they'd burn themselves, and believing all of these things would lead to enlightenment. So that's the, that style of, of renunciation. And then householders are usually referring to Brahmins. Now with that said, there's a lot of crossover. There's, there's Brahmins that were ascetics, there's Jains that were more like householders. Clearly, right, somebody had to take care of houses. And so um, I think that that's really clear. Let's move on to uh, <clears throat> Jen, would you like to start us off 405 to 409? You're muted. Oh, there you one go. Who, one who never punishes any living creature, either strong or weak, who never kills or even strikes another, such a one I call a Brahmin. The one who is tolerant among the intolerant and peaceful among the violent, who is unattached among the adversarious, this one I call a Brahmin. The one whose desire and hatred, pride and envy have fallen away like a mustard seed from the point of the hand, this one I call a Brahmin. The one who speaks the truth with such sincerity and gentleness that no one can take offense, this one I call a Brahmin. The one who takes nothing in this world, which is not giving nothing, long or short, small or large, good or bad, this one I call a Brahmin. Thank you. And Neil, would you like to read 405 to 409? He who is renounced violence towards all living beings, strong or weak or strong, who neither kills nor causes others to kill, him do I call a holy man. He who is friendly amidst, amidst the hostile, peaceful amidst the violent, and unattached amidst <coughs> the attached, him do I call the holy man. He whose lust and hatred, pride and hypocrisy, haven't fallen like mustard seed from the point of a needle, him do I call a holy man. He who utters gentle, instructive and truthful words, who appreciates none, him do I call holy man. Thank you. I'm thinking of that word, impreciates. Impreciates. Yeah, that's a strange word, isn't it? Uh, wish harm upon others, invoke evil upon someone, impressionate maybe, impreciates. Oh, thank you, Neil. That was an excellent job with a tough vocabulary. And Karma, would you like to read 405 through 409? Having given up violence toward being, sorry, toward beings, both timid and strong, whoever neither kills nor causes others to kill, I call a Brahmin. Whoever is unopposing among those who oppose, peaceful among the violent, not clinging among those who cling, I call a Brahmin. Whoever lets passion, aversion, conceit, conceit and hypocrisy fall away like a mustard seed from the tip of an awl, I call a Brahmin. Whoever speaks what is true, informative, and not harsh, who gives offense to no one, I call a, <coughs> excuse me, a Brahmin. 
Whoever in this world takes nothing not given, whether it is long or short, large or small, beautiful or not, I call a Brahmin. Thank you. There was one thing that I wanted to look at. This line in uh, Gideon Shippo's, I was, uh, drew my attention. One who never punishes any living creature, either strong or weak. I thought this was cool because when we were writing our Bodhisattva vows, we, uh, we had a lot of discussion about, we had a line that says not to harm any sentient life. And then uh, I had this idea of, of uh, thinking about harm. And th I, I, I don't know, thinking about people hitting their pets and things like that. And I wanted to make it clear that bodhisattvas don't harm any being in that way. So we added this idea of punishment, that the bodhisattvas don't harm or punish sentient life. And then we had to discuss it with all of our parents in the Sangha and say, well, as bodhisattvas, can you raise children without, without punishment? And, um, and not just physical punishment, but punishment. And then a lot of our Sangha informed me, because I'm not a parent, about these texts, uh, these different books on uh, positive parenting, on how to raise kids through positive enforcement and things like that. So it was nice to see that, uh, in fact, our decision to keep that in was supported here in the text. And then the other thing that was uh, interesting, I thought, was uh, 406. Uh, 405, I guess it's just reworded, uh, is a pretty good, uh, 405 is a pretty good verse to support veganism for all those vegan people, to not kill or cause others to kill. And, um, you know, the Buddha and his group might have been choiceless when they walked around with their begging bowls, eating whatever went in. But nowadays, when you eat something from the store, you know, you are creating uh, an economy for that and you're taking part in it. That's all I'll say about that. I know veganism is a tough subject for everybody. I'm not necessarily saying that's true. I'm saying that's that could be the argument for how, how you feel about things, right? Okay, uh, Karma, would you like to start us with 410 through 414? He is free from the very basics of desire for the world or for the next. He is the unfettered one, the desireless one, this one I call a Brahman. With complete knowledge, free from all doubt, wide open and unattached, he is. He has won the understanding of immortality, this one I call the, Bra the Brahman. He has thrown aside the obstructions of both merit and of sin. He is without blemish, free from sorrow and pure, this one I call a Brahman. Shining like the stainless moon, pure and faultless and clear, the one who has destroyed the cravings for pleasure, this one I call a Brahmin. I'm sorry, how far am I reading? One more, 414. We're doing them by fives. Yeah. Okay. He has abandoned the delusion of samsara, the path of error so painful to follow, and has reached the farther shore, contemplative, free of wavering and doubt, he is unattached and peaceful. This one I call a Brahmin. Wow, it sounds great, doesn't it? I wish I was all those things. Neil, would you like to read 414? Oh, I'm sorry, my mistake. 410 through 414. <clears throat> he who wants nothing of either this world or the next, who is desire-free and emancipated, him do I call a holy man. He who has no attachment 
who through perfect knowledge is free from doubt and prolonged and plunged into deathless. Do I call him holy man? He who in this world has transcended the ties of both merit and demerit, who is sorrowless, stainless and pure, him do I call a holy man. He who, like the moon, is spotless and pure, serene and clear, who has destroyed the delight in existence, him do I call a holy man. He who, having traversed this merry, prevalent and devolved round of existence, has crossed over, reached the other shore, who is meditative, calm, free from doubt, and clinging to nothing, has obtained nirvana. Him do I call a holy man. Him. Oh, the vi- oh that's, that's it right there, yeah. Um, boy, the vocabulary in Buddha-Rakitas are tough. We have these words that mire, miry, peerless, delusive, yeah, I think somebody gave him a vocabulary for Christmas. And we have Jen up for 410 through 414. Whoever has no longing for this world or beyond, who is unbound and without longing, I call a Brahmin, having no attachments and no understanding, we have doubts. Whoever is established in the deathless, I call a Brahmin. Whoever here has overcome attachments for both merit and evil and who is sourless, dustless, and pure, I call a Brahmin. Whoever like the moon is spotless, pure, clear, and undisturbed, and whom the delight for existence is extinct, I call a Brahmin. Whoever has passed beyond this troublesome road, this difficult path, this samsara, this delusion, who has crossed over, gone beyond, who is a meditator free of craving and doubt, without clinging, release, I call a Brahmin. Thank you. A couple things I wanted to touch on. And um, <clears throat> so we have this idea no longing for the world or what's beyond. In Buddhism, there's kind of a paradox. And so in SBT, we we have some practices like the practice of appreciation where we we learn to appreciate, you know, how how precious our life's life is and how precious it is to study the Dharma and things like that. But we have to weigh that against that in traditional Buddhism and whether the Buddha said it or this comes from later scholars who interpret it this way as, uh, as many uh, do with a bit of a darker uh, presentation. Uh, Buddhism talks about, you know, trying to look at this world like, Reject, not rejecting it, but not seeing the pleasure in any of it. But the Buddha's hope is, is that if you see this world as, even to the point of seeing everything in the world as being disgusting, then it just creates more of a desire to reach enlightenment. Uh, this is my interpretation. And the Buddha feared that if uh, practitioners even have mild appreciation and desire for this world, they're simply not going to work to go all the way to reach nirvana. So um, 
that's something that's always there. I don't think teaching that bleak presentation of Buddhism works. I can't imagine people coming if I was teaching that. It's just, uh, it really is just a bummer, right? It's really like a hopeless message. But nevertheless, it is there. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to talk about that. Um, uh, the deathless state is, of course, nirvana. Here's another one. Uh, now, I, I like that uh, Gil Fransdale translates this as overcoming attachment for both merit and evil. Attachment for good and bad, right? Of, of goodness and evil. Uh, and uh, where the other, the other ones, 412, has cast aside the obstructions of both merit and sin. He's not talking about the attachment to them. He is without blemish. Now, I would interpret in this case that the idea is that the, the awakened being sees beyond merit and sin. He sees that this distinction is a part of our conceptual construct, right? It's a value that we lay upon the world that, necess that isn't necessarily true. So the awakened being is existing more and more objectively. You know, he doesn't have all that subjective binding. And here, when he realizes the idea of merit and sin is just a value that we have in our, in, in our own minds, he's released from that. And he no longer builds karma in that way. And that's a very, that's a very popular thought in Buddhism, that, that one there. And then just some of these beautiful thoughts. I think most of these don't need any uh, translation. The delusion of samsara. Why is it a delusion? Samsara isn't a place. Samsara is a mental state. Samsara is delusion. It's the exaggerated view of the world in which we see things as existing more substantially than they actually are. Okay. Um, does anybody remember where we are? We are at 414. Anybody? 415. Okay. And would you like to start us off, uh, Jennifer? 414 through 419? Forsaking all desires, he becomes a homeless monk and then completely eradicates all desires. This one I call a Brahmin. Forsaking all cravings, he becomes a homeless monk and then completely eradicates all cravings. This one I call a Brahmin. He has cast off all attachments of men and has given up the attachments of the gods, free from every fetter. Sorry. This one I call a Brahmin. He has left behind both joy and sorrow. He is cool and passionless. The hero who has overcome the world, this one I call a Brahmin. He knows the birth and death of all beings everywhere. He is free from attachment, gone to bliss, the awakened one, this one I call a Brahmin. That was lovely. Thank you. Uh, uh, Karma, would you like to read 4.15 through 19? He who, having abandoned sexual, sensual pleasures, has renounced the household life and become a homeless one, has destroyed both sensual desire and continued existence, him do I call a holy man. He who have abandoned craving has renounced the household life and become homeless 
one has destroyed both craving and continued existence. Him do I call a holy man. He who at casting off human bonds and transcending heaven, heavenly ties is wholly delivered of bondages. Him do I call a holy man. He who having cast off likes and dislikes has become tranquil, is rid of substrata of existence, and like a hero has conquered all the world, him do I call a holy man. He who in every way knows the death and rebirth of all beings and is totally detached, blessed, and enlightened, him do I call a holy man. That was lovely. And Neil, would you like to do 415 through 19? Whoever, having given up passion here, would go forth as a homeless one, in whom the passion for existence is extinct, I call Brahman. Whoever, having given up craving here, would go forth as a homeless one, in whom the craving for existence is extinct, I call a holy man, a Brahman. Whoever, having given up human bondage, has gone beyond heavenly bondage, is unbound from all bondage, I call a Brahman. Whoever, having given up liking and disliking, has become called without attachments, a hero overcoming the entire world, I call a Brahman. Whoever knows in every way the passing away and reappearing of beings is unattached, awakened, and well gone. I call a Brahmin. Thank you. One th small thing I wanted to comment on. When they talk about um, one who's given up liking and disliking, and in some of the others, I think it's 418, um, who... Uh, has gone beyond like and dislike and and we talked about before about good and bad the idea is that an awakened being goes beyond that that kind of dualistic kind of idea and sees things as spectrums so whether things are good or bad liked or disliked the awakened being just sees them as experience and realizes that the discernment of what kind of experience that is, is our own, is part of our subjective reality. But the fact is that they're all just experiences themselves. So again, like we talk about seeing the world in spectrums, that's what the awakened being does. And he doesn't have to do away with them. He just has to recognize that. You know, again, things in the world aren't our problem. It's our relationship to them. It's our understanding of them. Uh, Neil, would you like to read 420 and 421? His way is unknown by gods. Gantivers yeah. or men. All the defilements are extinguished. He is an Ahant, this one I call a Brahmin. He possesses nothing whatsoever in the space of past, future, or the center of time. He holds nothing and clings to nothing. This one I call a Brahmin. 
Jennifer, 420 to 421. He, he whose track no gods, no angels, no humans trace, that who has destroyed all cases, him do I call a holy man. He who clings to nothing of the past, present, and future, who has no attachment and holds on to nothing, him do I call a holy man. Thank you. Karma, 420 and 421. An Arahant who, whose destination is not known by gods, Gandhavas, or humans, whose toxins are extinct, I call a Brahmin. One for whom nothing exists, in front, behind, and in between, who has no clinging, who has nothing, I call a Brahmin. Thank you. I read that the, this Gandhavaharas is like an angel, so it's like a... It's a demigod or something, right? Wonderful. I don't think I need any commentary there. You can see that the text is quite long. We're getting over our hour, but I'm going to try to finish. I think, oh, we just have two more. Um, Karma, could you read these last two, 422 and 423? He is the hero, the chief, the leader, the great sage, and the conqueror, unwavering and purified, the awakened one, this one I call a Brahmin. He knows his former births and sees both the heavens and hells. He has obtained the end of birth. With highest knowledge, he has reached the end. He is the sage whose deeds are all achieved. This one I call a Brahmin. One thing I found interesting is, in a sense, he's, he's speaking to people and he's saying, you're not Brahmins, we're Brahmins. He's saying, our, our arhats are real Brahmins, not the rest of you guys. Uh, and we have Neil for 422 and 423. Be noble, be excellent, be heroic, be great sage, be conqueror, be passionless, be pure, be enlightened one. Him do I call a holy man. He who knows his former birth, who sees heaven and hell, has reached the end of birth and attained to the perfection of insight, the sage who has reached the summit of spiritual existence, him do I call a holy man. Ah, oh, thanks, everybody. Instead of asking for questions because we're running late, if anyone has any questions, please post them on our, our WhatsApp uh, Dharma group, and I'll answer them there. Um, and usually I give a little commentary on um, uh, at the end. Uh, but to be honest with you, the commentary, there wasn't much to say that then just kind of repeat a lot that was said. So I'm going to forego that and talk about something else. Um, I think that this chapter is very self-explanatory. So I think uh, to just read through it again uh, is all you need to do. Uh, I was going to talk about, I was just going to reiterate some of the qualities of the Arhat. And I was going to reiterate some of the advice that was given, but it's all kind of there already. But one thing I would like to talk about is the afterword uh, in the Gil Franzdale's text. So they have a little concluding text there, and uh, it's a couple pages long, and it's a great read. We're not going to cover that in the class, which probably we should have. 
I think next time we do it, we'll add an extra week for that. But nevertheless, I wanted to talk about some of it. And um, to me, it really puts the Dharmapada into perspective. In fact, I think next time we share this, I'm going to start the whole project with this. So to really give people a balanced view of what they're about to read, I think this should have been in the beginning. Uh, but a, a couple points in the afterward where uh, scholars of the Dhammapada generally believe only 166 of the 424, 23 verses have parallels within the actual sutras of Vinaya and Sutra. Uh, though most of these 166 parallel verses are presented as the words of the Buddha, more than 30 are actually presented as spoken by one of his disciples or by a god. In fact, in certain verses, the Buddha praises a god for a verse and encourages people to memorize it, which, which suggests that the Buddha did not consider that verse to be his own. In another passage, the Buddha explains that some lines in some verses did not originate from himself, but were already current in society of the day. Furthermore, a number of verses could also be found in non-Buddhist Indian sources. So what does that mean? That means that we're on the right track as being uh, agnostics. And the fact that as much as the traditional Buddhist uh, schools and traditions, they present uh, the the uh, Buddhist canon as being unflawed, and uh, much like other religions, present their their own religious uh, text. Uh, the fact is that that it just is simply not true. There was another verse they talked about that the Dhammapada was actually already written and in place even before some of the sutra uh, text were not completely finished being interpreted. So um, it shows us that, you know, just like all things, we have to be careful in what we study. And the idea that the Buddhist canon, whether it's in Chinese, whether it's in Sanskrit, or whether it's in Pali, is a uh, it's a work but it's a work of many different people and we have to be careful of what we uh, what we get from it and uh, you know in the uh, buddha's own words you know only accept what you find beneficial to yourself what you find is is leads to a fruitful life now if some of you might say, well, Tarpa talks about living in rags in the forest under a tree and being as so skinny that all your veins show. That's what you should be doing if you think of yourself as an authentic teacher. And I would say, well, I don't think so, because I couldn't imagine that lifestyle really. And I have tried that lifestyle, by the way. I have lived, I've studied underneath many trees throughout my Asian trips and caves in the Himalayas, and I don't find that kind of lifestyle was ever beneficial to me at all. I find that a moderate amount of comfort allows me to focus fully on my studies. So nevertheless, fascinating stuff, huh? So that gives us a lot of food for thoughts on exactly what we what we do with all, all of it. The last thing I would like to say, and uh, it was actually within the last few verses that it, it's quite obvious, I think, by now that the Buddha clearly believed in rebirth, right? 
that, well, again, if you wrote it right out of the 166 verses that make up the 423. But again, um, throughout the verses, he talks about that the, uh, the Arhat, who calls, that he considers a Brahmin, uh, can see the, uh, the lives of, of the past and future lives of other beings. <clears throat> now, it's up to you whether you believe in such a thing. What we're talking about is, it seems obvious that the Buddha believed in rebirth, and, and it's just, it's spread throughout this text and all the, all the other texts uh, text as well. That doesn't mean you have to believe in it, but it is important to know that the Buddha and his practitioners did, and they wrote about it, and it's some people believe that all the talk of rebirth was added at a future date. And to me, that seems really unlikely. There's just too much of it to get sprinkled in at a later time. It seems quite obvious. Anyways, uh, remember that these sutra teachings are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage fully with them, utilizing the three great objectives of study, contemplation, and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings and how the Dhammapada applies to your daily life, transforming them from words on a page into living Dharma. So we'll be taking a short pause from our Saturday Sutra teachings while I travel abroad for a few weeks. Uh, we'll be resuming our Sutra studies on Saturday, May 13th. Our new Sutra texts We'll, uh, we'll be studying, will be the Dhamma Chaka Pavantana Sutra, which is translated as the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dharma's teachings. So the beginning of the Dharma of the Buddha's teachings, we call, we call the wheel of Dharma and the Buddha set the wheel of Dharma in motion. And he's considered a wheel turning Buddha. So, uh, and this, this is a very short sutra. We'll probably just do it within a class or two, but it's one of the first, and it's about the Four Noble Truths, and it's quite beautiful. It's my favorite out of all the sutras. I'll be posting which presentations of the sutra we'll be studying in a, in a week or so once I uh, figure that out. But today I'll post one of them on social media. Um, there's a Theravada website called Access to Insight, accesstoinsight.org. And they're a great resource for early uh, canonical uh, work. And so I'll post that link on our social media. So with that said, let's end today's class with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. We all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks everybody for coming. Remember that the SBT community was created for one purpose only, to support you, the practitioner. Thanks everybody. I'll see you tomorrow for meditation. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And...